little bit. Um, a, first of all, we talk about Vision Night. <laughs> I realize Vision Night is happening for some of you on your Super Bowl, which is um, the Oscars. And some of you are like, oh, no. That's the other great American holiday. And the answer is, no, it's not. If that's the biggest thing in your life, you, we have counseling available for you after service. And I just want to <laughs> let you know. No, we have actually changed the date of that particular thing a couple times. Um, and it really is just a chance for you to hear about, so I would, here's what I would say. We're not, gonna, we're not going until 11 p.m. on this event. It's only until 7. Um, and here's what I would say. Record all of the pre-red carpet stuff and judge everybody later, you know, on your own, whatever you want to do. Uh, but I do want to tell you, it is a great opportunity to hear what God's going to do, what, you know, where we feel like God's calling us to in the, in the future of our church. I'd love for you to be a part of that. It will be really, really fun. We'll feed you and we'll, um, we'll share a little about what God's doing and, you know, it'll be a great time. It was great last year. I'd love to have you be a part of that. So if you're, this is your home church, you're volunteering, this is where you have some kind of, you, this is like your, this is your home. And either you are already volunteering and leading in some capacity in our church or you just want to steal a free meal, come, okay. We'd love to have you be a part of it. It's really, really going to be great. All right. Um, lastly is this, as we get closer to Easter, one of the things I just want to affirm you for as a church is you have become and are so good at already is being a church of, of like, who's embraced the idea of being invitational, inviting. You know, I know when people come to our church, oftentimes what they'll say to me at the door is, as they're walking out, is this is our first time, we felt so welcomed. And even more so what they'll say is our friends bought, brought us here and it has, cha- it has changed our life. I talked to a guy today, so I've been coming here for six months, and this has literally changed my life because people were inviting me and welcome- welcoming me into this community. And I just need you to know how much that matters, especially as we get close to Easter, when people in the, in the world are kind of going, you know, what do you guys do? Are you kind of a secret society, or do you let people come check stuff out, or what's your kind of deal? And you being able to go, no, we're not secret. It's totally fun, cool, and, you know, like, check it out, and you, you can tolerate the message, but everything else is really cool there, and, you know, whatever else you need to say. Because I know how hard it is to invite people. You literally kind of go, please don't make this one of those lame ones, Jeff. Like, do something good here today and please help us. And I get it. So um, what we, we do our best to deliver every week. And hopefully there's a, ch- a sense about people who are coming here going, which there is. There's a sense of people going, this is a place because of the people that are here that I want to make my home. So continue to work in that direction as we get closer to Easter. Now, we are in a series, um, we're in the middle of it, called uh, The Art of Relationships. And as we've been saying every single week in the series, which is that, you know, relationships are, are far more art than they are science. In fact, we try to apply, a lot of times we try to apply scientific sort of formula to our own relationships, particularly those of us who are parents of more than one child. You know, we have one child, we have a formula, we've used it, it works. We have a second child and we're going, how come our formula doesn't work anymore? That kid doesn't respond the same way as the other kid. And then you have a third kid and you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. And some of you, I know there's one of the guys who was playing today. His, his wife gave birth, I think, on like Thursday. He's like here playing. I'm like, how do you... He's got three other kids, too. He's got four girls. There's no formula for that, folks. There's just only, there's only <laughs> prayer. So we've actually been saying it's, it's, it's not even just science, not even just art. It's actually more like a dance. We said from the very beginning, and we talk about relationships, sometimes everybody's moving to the same music, and it's beautiful and wonderful. And other times we're kicking people in the shins, and we're stepping on toes, and it's tough. Relationships are tough. And as we consider all of what relationships are, their beauty and their difficulty and challenges, we've been looking back over this past couple of weeks at this one particular verse that comes out of uh, Galatians, which is the Apostle Paul who's writing to this church in Galatia. He's saying, he's taking all these groups of people who would never otherwise associate. People who are rich and poor, different races and even different religious backgrounds. People who are slaves, people who are free, men and women. All these people in the ancient Roman world who would never have associated are now together in this one group. And he's like, how are we going to figure out how we should all get along in this place? Because we never would have gotten along just outside the church. And so what we've been saying every week is that 
Paul calls on a verse that Jesus utilizes that actually comes out of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. Here's what he, what he says, right there. He says this, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. That the guiding ethic for the community of people who are gathered as part of a, a, a group of people who will walk with and follow Jesus, that whole community has to be guided by this idea of other people are going to become are going to come first, and we're going to look out for each other. And this is the idea of this spoken kind of unity and um, togetherness that's sort of spoken about. Now, today, as we talk about this, we take a next one step further. One of the things I want to talk to you about is there's one thing that every single person in the entire world wants to know. There's one thing that everybody wants to know, and it only comes out in our most serious, most important relationships in our life. And the degree to which we answer that question, the degree of certainty we have to the answer to that question literally affects the trajectory of our whole lives. And it's a question everybody wants to know. So we're going to dive into that today. Let's pray together and we'll jump into it. Jesus, we long for closeness. We long for a a sense of, of value and security. Lord, I know that um, as we talk about stuff each week, I know that some of us have been wounded and, uh, and have caused wounds. We're people, Father, who are a work in progress, and we long to see the reparation that you would bring in our lives. And so, Father, more than anything else today, might your love for us be apparent? Might it be clear? Might the rest of our relationships overflow out of the love that you have for us? And so, Jesus, as we've been doing each week, really, Would you just speak to us for just a few seconds in stillness and in silence? Some of the only silence we'll get in our whole week. Would you speak to us about your great love for us? About how much you value us, Jesus. About how much we matter. Father, we are a work in progress. And there's a lot that you still intend to do with us. But might it be absolutely clear, Jesus, that you are crazy about us, that you love us, and that you'd give everything for us, and you already have. And so in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, when you came in, you got a bulletin. In that bulletin, on the back side of it is a little outline. You can follow along there if you would like to do so. Take notes however you like. We're going to spend some time in Philippians uh, chapter 2. And then if you want to also, if you want to follow along in your Bible or in your own um, phone or whatever you might do, we'll also be um, in Galatians 6 as well. So you can follow along there. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you don't know what the words I just was saying, everything you need to know will be on the screen as well. So however you need to follow along, great. I'm excited to get you there. Now, this past week I was talking to my buddy. He's got a high school age daughter. And uh, he was telling me about how she got invited to her first high school dance. And I was like, well, how did that go? Because I have a daughter who, you know, is is nine, and, you know, she's already imagining this future for herself, which I'm coming to find out many, many, many girls imagine their dance scenario. And let me just tell you, as I asked him how it went, I go, you know, he's explaining how his own daughter is. And what I realized is girls think about dances a lot different than guys think about dances. And in her head, she had all kinds of expectations built up. The way in which he was supposed to ask her to the dance was already decided in her head before he asked her. And the dance, the asking, by the way, when I was like in high school, I don't know if this is true for you guys, when I was in high school, it was like, you know, if you did anything above just like, hey, do you want to go to the dance with me? That was like, great. Now you better have the Goodyear blimp. You better have a special musical guest show up kicking open the door with the smoke and, hey, it's Beyonce. I know, I rented a Beyonce just to come and do a show and invite you to go to Winter Formal with me. Oh, that's so cool. Why didn't, why didn't you get someone else? I mean, it's like, oh, I don't know. I tried the best. It's like the production level is so high now for the asking and my impression of what happened here was that the guy just basically was like, hey, do you want to go to the dance? To which she was like, okay, but already she's disappointed. 
And then, there, it's, then because she believes it, by, in some kind of, I don't know how, how this is supposed to go, but I think more than likely what she believed is some kind of mystical energy field was supposed to communicate to this guy a bunch of details that he was supposed to intuitively know because he's so into her, right? So the idea was he was supposed to get some kind of clue about how her, his outfit was supposed to match hers, which a guy never cares about that, ever. So he's supposed to know that. So she, because she just wants to really quickly check in case the mystical energy field wasn't communicating exactly as it was supposed to to this other guy, she calls and says, hey, what color are your pants? He's like, gray. She's like, can you go buy some black ones? To which he was like, no, I cannot. That's crazy, Right. She has built this thing. Now everything's supposed to match. I, you know, I don't, I, like the, the color of every single part of every one of these components is supposed to match perfectly. They're supposed to have this magical night. It's supposed to be this beautiful moment. Now, what is very apparent, in fact, even on the night of, I was asking like, hey, was this guy like a jerk to her on the night of? He goes, well, you know, not totally. I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, she got cold at one point and he gave her, you know, the, his jacket. I'm like, that's pretty cool. And he goes, yeah, and then he went over to go hang out with some other girl. <laughs> oh. Now, the guys in this room, even though they just said, uh, are like, I kind of get it. She was acting a little crazy. <laughs> and all the women are like, that's horrible. All you who laugh, I hate all of you. I mean, I just know that's part of what you think. But that's really kind of healthy. Now, here's the point. In her mind, the, the dance, here's, at one level, the dance is clearly not as important to him as it is to her. I mean, he's just like, yeah, we're going to this dance. But that's not really the issue here. The issue isn't really about the dance. It's about her. How important to, to you, guy, how important to the guy is this person? The dance is just an expression of how much he values her. And in so many ways, to stretch this out a little further, and more than just dances, there's a question we all want to know, like I said before. We want to know, do I matter most to the people who matter most to me? In all of your relationships, the question you want to know is, the people who are the closest to you, the people who matter most to you, you're wondering in your head, do I matter most to them? And it starts out at a very, very young age. We don't have to be told as kids to start wondering about this question. We need this to be proven to us when we're very young in some way or another. We want to know, do the people who matter most to us, how do we know that we matter to them? For little kids, they wonder about their own parents. And at some point, usually somewhere junior high or high school age, they start going, I really wonder if I matter as much to my parents as they say that I do. And they'll generally put that to the test. And for parents, as, our, as we get a little bit older, there's a reason why mom calls a lot when you go to college. Because then it flips. I want to know, do I matter most to this person who matters so much to me, who's now left my house? Do I still matter to them? It's a question we ask about our own friends. In the closest friendships we have in our lives, we want to know, hey, if I, went, if I went sideways or something really bad happened to me, would you guys be there for me? Do I matter most to you guys? In fact, I think similarly in junior high and high school, parents start having conversations with their own kids about what does it actually mean to be a friend? Because you see a lot of people acting in such a way that they get the name friend, but they're not acting like it. And the, then we start having conversations with our kids going, do they treat you as if you matter to them? We have conversations even as we think about this in our relationship with our spouses so much conflict and so much of our own issue with our own relationship uh, in, our, in our marriage relationships comes out of this question of, am I really that important to this other person? It's true of our own family members. It's true of every single relationship that matters to us. Now, I should say, what we're going to be talking about today isn't the relationships that are, that are on the periphery of your life. 
In other words, I'm not talking about when you, this, the relationships that matter most to you. I'm not talking about, like, the person who works at Costco, who you're like, you know, who, like, they're, they're skin. Now, that person works at Costco, maybe your husband or your wife. But, I mean, I'm just saying that the person who works at Costco who's scanning your groceries is not the person I'm talking about here in terms of the depth of the relationships, you know. How's it going today? It's okay. Beep. Um, can I share with you some things in my life? Beep. I'd rather you didn't. <laughs> Beep. You have a coupon. Beep. I mean, it's just like these are not, this is not what we're talking. We're talking about the relationships that are most important to you in your life. About those ones, those people who were supposed to love you in your life, and about the people you're supposed to love with the greatest degree of import and significance in your life. Do those, those are the relationships we're talking about. Now, here's what the Apostle Paul will say, is sort of looking at the, the early church. What he'll say is, oh, first of all, I should say this. Not only is this question about how much do I matter to those who matter most to me, but also how do the people that matter most to you know that they matter most as well. Not just do I matter, because again, the degree to which we answer that question with our security about that answer paints the trajectory of our whole lives. If the people closest to us matter the most, then all the other things in our life kind of don't matter as much because those people care about us the most. But also, how do those people that are closest to you know that you care about them too? Paul will say this, as he's talking in Philippians, his letter to the church in Philippi, he'll say this. In your relationships, here's our series, with one another, he'll say, here's what I want you to know about how to live in your relationships. Here's what should be the benchmark for how you live. Have the same mindset, some of your translations of your Bible will have the word attitude as Christ Jesus. He'll say, if you're wondering how the relationships are supposed to look, whatever's supposed to be there, it should look like this it should look like this. It should look like Jesus. And the question we have as we think about all of these relationships and what it might mean to have the same mindset, mindset as Jesus, one of the questions that's in our head is, not only how do I know I matter most, but how do we measure the way in which we can kind of, how do we, how do we put a metric or an idea around how much someone matters to us? The best way to do that, the best way to think about this, in other words, how much does any one person matter to another is a function of at least two things. I have two, but there's maybe more. But here's at least one of them. The size of the sacrifice they're willing to make. So the way in which you can figure out how much you matter to someone else or someone matters to you is the size of the sacrifice given by either party. Some of you are in relationships with people, and I said this already since the beginning of this series, which is this. If you're in a relationship with someone who is unwilling to have that relationship cost them anything, they do not care about you in the way that maybe you care about them. They, you are not as important to them as you might want them to be. Secondarily, if you are looking at someone else in a relationship in your life and you are unwilling to make a significant sacrifice for them or you're not unwilling to make a sacrifice for them or you want it to cost you nothing, you don't really care about that relationship. Hands down. How much any one person matters to another person is a function of the size of the sacrifice they're willing to make. Now, Paul is saying, when you want to get an idea of what a relationship looks like, he says, let's look at this person of Jesus. And here's what he says. Who, meaning Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now, I want you to pay attention really closely. This whole idea of verse 7, he made himself nothing, is a, it's it's. It's often referred to as the kenosis, which means the emptying. We'll talk about that in a second. But you have a picture of Jesus who is, has all rights and power and authority 
given to him that are all his, and he empties himself. He gives, up, gives it all up to accomplish something. Check this out. Keep going. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, in the early church, very early on, this, these, these verses of the Bible in Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 11, or 6 through 11, were actually believed to be a hymn. People would sing it, or at least say it at the beginning of every service, to, to identify that Jesus has given himself up for us. And this, in fact, the, the, the last half of this hymn, which is through verse 11, will explain how Jesus is to be lifted up and how everybody who has been far from him could be brought to God. Now the point of that is this. That for Jesus and the way in which the church is viewed, the most important thing he could do is to restore a, ro- a broken relationship, the one between human beings and him. That he would give everything he had to make that relationship work. He would empty himself. The word, as I said, kenosis means the emptying. But Jesus said, there's nothing I'm holding on to here that's worth holding on to that's bigger than the relationship being restored. The degree of sacrifice that Jesus gives is to give up all of the rights and privileges that he has as God to empty himself of those things, to walk among human beings, and then to die as, as a criminal on a cross. That's emptying. Now, a couple things to point out. When Jesus is walking around on the earth, people have a very difficult time understanding why he keeps acting in this way, this emptying kind of way. He keeps acting and behaving as though he's this long-awaited person who would bring about the restoration of the world. He keeps being kind of heralded as this king, and yet he's not acting like a king because kings do what we would do. Because kings who have power and authority and sway and importance, they make it known to everybody else they're kind of a big deal. Because that's what we would do too. I mean, you don't have a record of Jesus in the Bible going in and flaunting his power. You see him using his power to restore the marginalized, the weak, the lost, and the lonely. You see him being associated with people that give him a bad name all the time. Frequently he's being quoted as hanging out with notorious sinners. Jesus isn't using his power like we would use it. Because we would, honestly, if we were the king, how much would we use that power? I mean, even a little bit. We would at least be able to, we'd want to walk into it. I mean, Jesus never walks into a restaurant in the first century and goes, hey, everybody, I'm Jesus. I'm going to need you guys to move. I want this table. I'm just, I don't, I'm sorry. I'm I'm the Lord. (laughs) So kind of a big deal around here. If you just want to go ahead and move out so I could do it. Me and my buddies want to get something to eat, so we're going to go to the front of the line, actually. I mean, there's never any sense of that. Because you know we would use that power. We would walk into In-N-Out Burger and go, excuse me. I'm going to need to shame myself by eating 100 burgers right now. So I need all of you guys to just leave so I can have that. We would do that. And this is why people don't recognize Jesus, because he's emptying himself of everything that sounds and feels like a reason to use authority, to use power in an inappropriate way for selfish means. And so they go, that can't really be you, Jesus. Now, for Jesus to restore the relationships that matter the most, it cost him his dignity, It cost him his status. It cost him his comfort. And this is briefly, just so you know, this is, this may, and by the way, this may be all, the only reason some of you came to church today. And this is great. I have more, but this is the only thing you may have needed. This is how much God cares about you. To ask the question, how much do I matter to God? The actual answer is, Jesus gave up everything to restore you to him. Some of you have lived under the impression or under the oppression of a lie that says you are not enough for God. You are constantly at a distance from him because you have not done it right. You haven't done enough. And God is saying, I did everything for you because you matter that much to me. 
if you want to know how much you matter to me, here is the size of the sacrifice that I've given. That may be all you needed. Like, I got more stuff, like I said, and I think it's pretty good stuff, but that may all be all you needed today. Now, the next thing is this. The way in which we know how much those people matter most to us, the way in which we can kind of get a handle on those things, is a function, like we said, how much any one person matters to another is a function of the size of the sacrifice they're willing to make. And secondly, the strength of their shared intimacy. The strength of their shared intimacy. Here's what I mean by that. I think for a lot of people, a lot of great, well-meaning and intended people, more often than not, what we'll say, this is particularly true of guys, I found this to be true, that we are really happy to make a sacrifice for people that matter most to us in our lives. We'll talk about our job, we'll talk about our career, we'll talk about the things we gave up to be with the people, to sustain the people that matter most to us in our lives. But what we have a really hard time with is intimacy. And intimacy is that overlapping mutual love, community, respect kind of thing that goes all together. It's the transparency and vulnerability of a shared life together. And often what you will see in families is that you have people going, I know this person loves us because they've made a huge sacrifice, but I don't really know them. I don't really know that they're in it with us. I know that they're in it in some, situ- in some way or another. They're kind of like, they're, they're, they're doing stuff that's you know, for us and I believe in all that, but I don't know them and I've, I feel like I lost them. And often, more often than not, guys are saying, did you not see the sacrifice I made? This is all I've got. And other parts of the community, kids and you know, spouses are going, well, wait a second, but I lost you in the process. I need you. Intimacy is the expression of this shared life. You see this every so often in the Bible. You see a word that describes this. And what I would say this is too, when you talk about this word, it shows, it's one of the words that you get, it's, it's like one of the few, like if you grew up in a church, you probably have heard this Greek word. Like it's one of the ones that church people like to use. It's, it feels really important and scholarly and awesome. And we use it a lot in the church if you grew up with it. But it's a word describing this kind of thing. And here's what it is. It's the word koinonia. If you grew up in a church that is, you know, for, you more than likely heard this phrase. A lot of times people have koinonia groups, you know. But here's the, the definition of it. It, has, it implies mutual sacrifice, shared participation and love. The word koinonia literally comes from the root word meaning common. Not simply meaning common like it's sort of regular garden variety, normal, that kind of stuff. It means, it, it implies the idea of shared things. People that are holding things in common. In fact, the way that you actually, so this is kind of the intimacy we're talking about. Now, the way that that word gets translated, it shows up 19 times in the Bible. 12 times you get this word associated with it. Fellowship. Fellowship is the, the English translation of this word. Now, if you grew up in the church, how many of you guys, just really quickly, you grew up in a church in which you had a fellowship hall? Like there was some kind of fellowship room. Okay, great. About half of you. Now, what did you do in the fellowship hall? You eat. Oh, that's basically all you do. That... Somehow or another, if you grew up in the church, and this I realize not everybody grew up in the church, but to grow up in the church, you see this word fellowship a lot. And more often than not, it's described as kind of the byproduct of people eating together. And the, the churches will use things like this. And truthfully, there is some good things that come out of eating together. Of course, that's always a great gift to give each other is food. That's great. It's beautiful, wonderful. Here's what I want you to capture, though. Churches talk about it like this. Hey, we went to the beach and had some fellowship. Hey, we threw a frisbee. Fellowship. We ate a pizza and had fellowship together. We played softball on Thursday nights and fellowship. And then pretty soon it starts becoming a verb. You know, we went for a jog together and had, we just were fellowshipping together as we were jogging. We fellowshiped in the fellowship hall and then had fellowship feast and fellowship and fellowship came out of it. It was just the best. 
the word in the Bible for fellowship, this word koinonia, has far more to do with an overlapping sense of mutual participation and love. I don't think it can simply, in other words, I think part of what you should do as people whose lives overlap is you should eat together. <laughs> but what's being described here is a real intention to have lives that are, that are constantly overlapping in a mutual shared respect, a mutual shared love. That's intimacy. Where people know stuff about you and you know stuff about them. That's intimacy. The way in which uh, the Bible describes this, uses a lot of verses that describe fellowship. But I want you to see what just the Apostle John writes to the early church. He says this. This is in 1 John chapter 1. He says this. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. Meaning so that you may have intimate connection, belonging, mutual love, respect with us. In other words, I want you guys, people out there, I want you to have this with us. That's what he's saying. And to clarify, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. As we are intimately connected with each other, what you're, what you're buying into is that we're all intimately connected with this person, Jesus, through, or we're all connected with, this person, with God through his Son, Jesus. That's a really good description of the church, by the way. A description of people whose lives overlap in mutuality and care and concern and love and that people who are, who, whose lives overlap with Jesus in which there is mutuality, love, care, and concern. That's, the early church. That's a picture of the early church. Over and over again you get this biblical emphasis on, on, on unity and togetherness and people sharing their lives together. Remember, Paul is saying the way in which our lives ought to look is like Jesus. In fact, backing up into that message in Philippians, 1, Philippians 2 verse 1, I'll say this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... Any comfort from his love. Notice all the fellowship with Jesus kind of words he's using here. If any common sharing, there it is again, in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, if you have any of that stuff, then make my joy complete. In other words, what he's saying is do Uncle Paul a favor here. If you got all this stuff with Jesus, then do me a favor by being like-minded, having, having the same love and being one in spirit and with one mind. And then he'll say right after that, in your relationships... You should be like Jesus. This person of unbelievable, sacrificial, and whole love. Now that's how it's supposed to work. That people would have this mutuality, this, this overlapping of life and love together. That's how it's supposed to work. Now here's what we know. It doesn't always work that way. We've already started this in the series. We've been identifying the reality that there's some brokenness in us. There's some brokenness we've caused in other people. There is hurt and there is, there is some stuff that is really tough in our relationships. And I would say, at least in some way, there's a million things that can undermine intimacy and cause us to question how much we matter. And the question is, what do we do with those things? Because the things that do cause us pain in our relationships are usually the things we don't really want to know. We don't really want to address those things. And so what do we do with the things that we'd rather not know when we really screw up or when the other person screws up in our lives? Because there are things that undermine intimacy and cause us to wonder, do we really matter to the people that matter most to us? Now I would say, when other people screw up in our lives, in the church I have found, I have found there's basically two camps. And I'm going to just describe both of the far ends of the poles of the spectrum, okay? So one, one end of the spectrum is this. When people screw up, 
Sometimes what you have with some people who have really screwed up is you have a response which is generally attacking and fighting and devouring and just distancing and creating all kinds of shame and evil and all kinds of stuff. This like, you screwed up and you should know it and people are, it may be a real thing, like swollen up with all kinds of righteous indignation and they need to know it and I need them to feel it. And I will attack them at all costs. Okay, there's, that's one camp. The other camp is way over here. It really is in a reaction to the perception people have about the church, which is this attacking and biting and judgmental kind of group of people. The other end of the spectrum, the other end of the spectrum is a lot more like permission and denial. I don't ever really want to, I just, my job is to just take this and absorb it. And your job, you know, I just let you do your thing. And I'm just, I'm just, I'll, I I don't really ever want to say anything about it because I don't want to be in any way associated with that over there. And neither are what you were intended to have in your relationships because both compromise the relationships. So I want to talk to you a little bit. I'm going to get a little bit more practical here, in, at least in some level, for you to kind of consider some things as you are looking at your own relationships. Again, if all you needed today was to hear that you mattered and God would give everything for you, then that's great. I'm perfectly happy with that. But I want you to hear a couple things as we kind of work through this a little bit. So here's just bearing those things in mind. Here's what I want you to take a look at. Paul will say to the church in Ephesus, he'll say this. You know, say this throughout his writings. He'll use this theme. You had an old life and you let that life go. And so now because you're walking with Jesus, you have a new life. Let's live in the reality of that new life and let the old life go. And so here's what he writes. You'll see the theme I'm talking about here. This is in Ephesians 4. I'll say this. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, your old life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. To be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now you can see, there's a rethinking of everything. We used to live like this, that part's gone, now there's a new way of being. And what he'll say is, occasionally, this is the best way, this is my own paraphrase. There is a residue of the old life which tends to surface and come up in us. And that old life, which isn't really the life in which we want to be living, it causes us to do damage to ourselves and to other people. So what do you do when you see that in relationships that matter most to you in your life? Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Here's what I mean with that. There is something to be said about telling people the truth about the things that are not okay. For a lot of people in the church, again, sorry, to think about it in this way, there's a lot of people in the church who live this way have no problem telling people what's wrong. (laughs) And there are probably as much as, as much as there are those, there are probably even more who say, I never want to tell anybody what's going on because I don't want to ruin the relationship. The only thing that happens when people don't address stuff, either, in either case, to address things, to never address things that are going on in people's life that are damaging or hurtful or compromising the relationship, only creates resentment. And the only thing that happens when someone decides to attack, not sort of, favoring this truthfulness in kind of a dangerous way. The only thing that happens there is a, some way of compromising a relationship, a, a level of belief about a self that's I'm better than you. We have to be able to speak truthfully to each other in relationships or the relationship will get compromised. It's a way actually, for those of you who live in this camp, it's a way actually of communicating to someone else that they matter and that the relationship matters to speak truth to them about those things. Now, I, wanna, I just want to give you a sense of just one tool here with this. People in your life screw stuff up. You screw stuff up too. And it hurts other people in your life. And here's how most of our conversations go. If we do have enough courage to actually deal with them. We go like this. Hey, I want to tell you. You matter so much to me. 
you're great at, you know, you, you and I have been through a lot together and we've loved a lot together. We've challenged a lot together. There's a lot going on. But I want to undo everything I just said right now about how great you are and then tell you some stuff. And we do as much as we can. We try to sandwich or at least prelude all of the things that we're ticked off about with a lot of stuff. And then it always hinges on a word we try to avoid, which is the word but. Let me tell you about another way to do this. I believe it is really life-giving. And I believe it's a way that you're actually communicating what you intend to communicate in your relationships that you, to the people that matter most to you in your life. It is not the word but. It is that word. And. Allow me to demonstrate. You matter so much to me. I care so much about our relationship. We have been through a lot together. And I'm willing to fight for this relationship. And I need to tell you about some things that are causing me a little confusion. Some things that are causing me a little bit of hurt. I just need you to know about that stuff. Do you feel the difference? You're great. You're wonderful. We're great. But you're also this horrible person. That's how everybody hears it. No matter how you, I don't know how sweetly you say it, but to say you're great, you're, we have a relationship that matters to me. And in order for it to take its next step, its next step, or to get it to the next level, I think there's some things we should probably address because I care so much about this relationship. It's almost as if the relationship, it's like a separate project from the people. There's this thing we're working on. It's over here, and because we both care so much about that, I think we should make sure it works great. I care about you, and I want to help our relationship take the next step. So I need to speak truthfully to you about some things that I do not fully understand or that have hurt me so that we can take our next step. So we have to say it. Now, what happens in people, the, the sort of typical Jesus-y way in which we deal with people who are confronting us, church people, <clears throat> is we tend to do the same thing. We, there's like a few verses we've memorized in the Bible. We memorize this one right here. Someone says, hey, there's some stuff I want to talk to you about. Oh, yeah, well, do not judge. You'll be judged. I'm pretty sure it's what the Bible says. You're judging. You're confronting me on something. Judge. I'll just keep on reading for you. For in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be used to measure you. The, Jesus will then go on in verses 3 through 5 talking about famously, why do you try to get the speck out of someone else's eye when you've got a plank in your own eye and you're, you're just bonking into people as you're talking to them? You sure you want to do that? Why don't you deal with that plank first? And we just love that when we're being confronted. See, you're judging. You have a plank in your eye. I just ducked because it almost hit me, bro. <laughs> we love this. Now, here's what I, want you to, what I want you to see. You absolutely do have to judge. You're like, what? Did he just say, I hate this church. I knew it. <laughs> I knew I didn't like it. Plank eye guy. Okay, now, just listen. You, there are certain things by which you have to judge. Because in the sixth chapter of Matthew, he just said you have to learn how to forgive people. You can't forgive people for wronging you if you can't accurately judge that you've been wronged. If that means if there's no judging at all, it means that there's literally nothing ever wrong ever in the world. You can't even forgive people who have wronged you because it's never wrong. The truth is that there are some things that we do and some things that other people do in our lives that are judged to be not awesome. And we should be able to talk about those things. What's being talked about here, in fact, it's difficult to understand in the Bible... Because the word for judge and the word for condemn are the same root word. But really what he's talking about here is you don't get to condemn people. You don't get to say, you screwed up so much that you are going to hell. He's the most ultimate judgment. What he's saying is, that's not what you get to do. You're going to have to figure out how to make some kinds of judgments about certain things. Which means you're going to have to say at some point or another, 
some things didn't work great. And I feel this way about some of the things that have happened to me, and I need you to know about it. And it isn't because you're being condemned, but there's a secret in our family, or there's an addiction, or a habit, or a thing we've all been kind of pretending isn't there, but I need to speak truthfully, and because I care about this relationship, I need you to know about it. And I feel like we need to address it so we can take our next step. And it's not because I'm condemning you, it's because I care so much about our relationship. Now, I should say also, in either case, in the plank eye scenario, this plank sticking out of the eye or the dust in someone else's eye, in either case, look closely, in either case in that scenario, there's still something to be removed in either person's eye. There's still something to be addressed. Jesus will say, be careful of the hypocrisy in that process. Then Paul will say, in Galatians 6, he'll say this, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Notice what's being said here. Some of you read that as, in your head, brothers and sisters, if someone's caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should confront them, help them correct their behavior, make sure everybody knows, with me, others of you read, though someone's caught in a sin, you should just, you should just be gentle with them. That's all you heard. Notice that the important what Paul is saying is that when someone's caught doing something that is in fact painful, which means you can't even make this, remember, you have to judge that it's actually a sin. He's saying the point of what you're doing here, the, all of the conversation and is for restoring the relationship. It's not to gain distance, to create separation, to create anything else. What's being talked about here is that when you address those things, it's for the purposes of restoring. It's for the purposes of restoring. In fact, he'll say this continuing on. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Now this isn't to say, I mean in some cases might be the truth, but I think for the most part this isn't saying you would go, that you might also fall into the same temptation that they're into. Meaning that they're, like, you're, you might do the same, you start talking to them, then pretty soon you're in the black hole of their sin, and then, oh, oh no, I never intended to do that. You know, it's like, oh, I don't know. That, that, may be, that may be possible. But based on the context, what's actually being said here is something a little bit different. What seems to be the case is that you would, be te- you would not be tempted to rush to a place in which you feel conceited, or condemning of the other person. There is something to be addressed here. We should address it, but let's not make sure let's make sure we don't fall into a place in which we're we're condemning the other person. That's the temptation. Look what it says, verse 2. Carry each other's burdens, and this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks there's something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Thus the temptation. To say to someone, there's stuff going on there. I don't get it. It's causing me some pain and some confusion, and I don't it's actually been hurting me, and we should address it. That person never gets to feel like they're better than the other person. I also want you to catch this. Carry each other's burdens. Now, this is a really tricky thing, I think, for the church. I think oftentimes you have people in the church who live with a belief or an understanding of what that might look like. And what that means is this. Again, so first, for those of you who kind of, you have a bent, and by the way, you're on either one of these sides of poles. Maybe not all the way out there, but you're at least leaning to one side. For those of you who are more likely to rush to a sort of attacking kind of posture, remember that the whole thing is about, this is about gentleness and about restoration. For those of you on the other side of things, I want to really create something. I want you to understand something really quickly. There is a, there is a part of us that tends to do this in church communities, which I really want to just capture really quickly. What happens more often than not is in this, in this permission-giving kind of whatever you do, can, you can do no wrong, and I'm just going to forgive and love, and that's my process. More often than not, what happens in that case 
is something where we begin to take on the issues and problems of the other person to a degree where we're actually living out their own process for them. We start saying, well, you keep screwing up, but I'm going to make sure and I'll just keep kind of patching your life together because that's what Jesus would want. And in some way or another, we're actually robbing them of their own journey to Jesus. We're trying to prohibit any sort of negative consequences from ever happening to them because we don't, we, that's what we think a loving person would do. And in fact, what we're doing is that at the most extreme, we, that's actually something called codependency. And it really ends up being about you and it damages the other person. Because we feel like this is what Jesus would do. I'll give you an example. And this is a very small scale example. Um, my, my youngest son, well, all my kids have little lunch boxes they take to school. My, and we told them, hey, listen, if you either forget your lunch box, after we bought like three or four of them in a row for all of our kids. It's like, wow, we're spending a fortune on lunch boxes. If you forget it, after this last one, like, if you forget it, you lose it or our dog eats it. Because if they leave it on the floor and, the, and then our dog will eat it. And he's just like, it's like field day for him. But they just get torn apart. We're not going to buy you another one. That's just kind of it. You have to go with the brown bag to school, and, you know, that's what you've got to do every day. Now, my two oldest kids are like, this is way easier. I hate having a lunch, but this is way off. But my seven-year-old is like, when am I going to have a lunchbox again? And we were like, you know, listen, we want you to have, we, I know this is hard, but we told you, and now you're having some negative emotional consequences because of that. And our job isn't to insulate you from all the negative emotions. Now, we're not using this language, by the way, to a seven-year-old. He'd just be like, uh, I don't know what that means. But our job is not to insulate you from all these negative emotional experiences. You may, you, we talk to you about this. You're responsible enough to be able to know where your lunchbox goes and know what you're supposed to do with it. And if you don't do it, well, then this is kind of the result. You still have, we're still feeding you. It's not like you don't get a lunch. You just have to take it with a humiliating brown bag. I didn't realize that was a big deal. And he's like, but the kids are making fun of me at school. We caved. We totally caved. Some of you were like, oh, I totally respected you. Not anymore. <laughs> May I remind you of Matthew 7, verse 1, don't judge. Okay, but. <laughs> it's really cool, too. The lunchbox is awesome. It was on sale for like $3.99, and it's like a tiger face with sunglasses on. Just so cool. We caved. Now, here's in a bigger sense, we do this all the time for people in our lives because we want to be loving people, is we give them permission to continue to do things that are damaging or destructive or hurtful. And then we sort of live for them, the we take on the consequences for them that they never have to deal with them. And in so doing, we actually damage their own ability to, to take a next step. And we damage the restoration process of a relationship. Some people in your life whom you love dearly, you're going to have to speak truth to them and let them deal with the negative emotional consequences. In other words, when we're, when we're in this with people, we don't get to do it for them. The sharing, of, the sharing of the burdens of people doesn't mean that we live their life for them, preventing anything bad from ever happening in their life. It means what we say is, I value you so much that you get your own journey and your own process here. And I'm with you, but I cannot do it for you. Imagine for a moment, just with me. Picture your own, your own relationships. In which no longer is there an underlying kind of, we should deal with that thing nobody's talking about. For those of you who have people in your life who are suffering from addictions or secrets or whatever else it is in your life, that maybe this is a time when you go, look, I care about you so much and there's this thing that we're not talking about that's actually destroying us and the ones we care most about. And I need you to know about it because I love you and I love this relationship. I will fight for this relationship. Imagine what it would be like if for our kids to learn what it means to sort of take their own journey and their own steps to, to greater wholeness and health in their own lives. 
that as they get older, they begin to go, this is my own responsibility to begin to sort of grow, my, to begin to le- learn what it means to take my own steps. Imagine what it would be like for you in schools and in your own, in, in, in schools and at work and in your own work relationships and with people that live in your own community in which you say, we're a community of people that deals honestly and gently and truthfully and without condemnation because we care about each other. We don't resort to backbiting. We don't resort to backstabbing. We don't just resort to trying to think. We just, our goal is to try to deal with things honestly and truthfully and gently. That changes our community. That changes the way our kids are, are, understand their own relationships. It changes the way our own marriages go. It changes the, our own relationships with our work environments. It changes the way in which, there's something beautiful about a church community who says, we're going to take this stuff seriously. The people who matter most, I will work hard to make sure they know it. And I will fight for intimacy. And anything that would get in the way of it, I'm going to deal with it. With gentleness and love. It's a beautiful picture. Let's pray together. Jesus, you have such great patience with us. You've shown us so much. And you continue to demonstrate to us that you are unendingly loving toward us. We've seen your sacrifice. And we know your love. And we sense your presence among us, Father, in so many ways. There's a lot to be grateful for. Father, as we sit here, I know there are folks who need prayer, that they have, there's been a lot of stuff that has maybe surfaced in the, in the recent minutes, just thinking about their own relationships. Maybe they need to come forward and receive prayer. Maybe they need to write something in the prayer wall and place it there. Father, would you meet us in love as we consider what it might look like to share in the intimacy of folks who are in a similar boat as us? Jesus, we know we don't have all the answers and we don't get everything right. Thank you that your love for us is not based on that. Thank you, thank you that you walk closely with us and that you hold us. And Father, as we sing these songs, might they not just simply be music to leave by, but Father, might they be songs that we, we sing to allow those words to sink into our own heart about how much you love us. Hear our words as we sing them in full voice with joy and hope. So Father, hear us as we sing and as we pray. In your name, Father. Amen. message is uh, kind of resonating with you this morning with our last moments here together we always we never want to want to rush through this and and just run out to lunch but we want to spend time worshiping together and praying together so there's going to be a prayer team on my right and my left so let's take advantage of this time that we have here together and pray with each other um, and let's worship together for the rest of the service here God come and speak to us as Evan's saying come and speak to us